Revelation chapter 20, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me once more. You know, there are certain names in church history that you and I should be familiar with, the lives of men and women who have accomplished much for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, Some of those I'm familiar with that we all should really be familiar with uh, would be names such as William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, Or Adoniram Judson, who lived along that same time period, who took the gospel to Burma. And some of Judson's spiritual fruit meets on our campus every week in our Burmese congregations. Uh, Others that perhaps uh, you should be familiar with would be uh, ladies, Amy Carmichael or Lottie Moon. Well, one other person from church history that you should be familiar with is the name Isaac Watts. Now, Isaac Watts was a clergyman in England, and uh, in addition to that, he was a prolific hymn writer, and he is credited with more than 750 hymns that have been preserved for generations, many of which we still sing. Uh, Some of his more familiar hymns uh, would include hymns such as this, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. Or this one, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Or this hymn, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Isaac Watts was deeply moved one day while he was reading and meditating from Psalm 98. And here's, here's what he read from that psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Break forth into joyous song. Sing praises. Sing praise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And so it was this idea that the Lord is the king of the earth that really resonated with his heart. And as he meditated upon those words, Isaac Watts began to write some words of his own. And when he had finished, he had written a four stanza poem that we sing every year as December rolls around. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Now, it may be strange to think of those words in muggy August because we associate those lyrics with the Christmas season. But, you know, Isaac Watts would probably, I don't want to say turn over in his grave, but he would probably be mortified to know that the church only sings that song at Christmas time because when Isaac Watts wrote those lyrics He wasn't really thinking of Christmas at all, Uh, nor was he really thinking about the first advent of Christ at all. Now, it's wonderful we sing this at Christmas because it does have wonderful truth to express concerning the coming of the Lord. That's true of both his first coming, but especially true of his second coming. Now, think about it. Think about the lyrics of this great Christmas carol. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Or what about the third stanza? No more let sin and sorrow grow. 
nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Or the last stanza, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So when you pay close attention to the lyrics, I think it becomes obvious that Isaac Watts was referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ to rule and to reign as the king over all the earth. Let earth receive her king. Did this really happen when Jesus came the first time? Well, no. John 1 tells us that when he came the first time, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected by the world that he came to save. No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. If you've got a garden, I'm pretty sure you know that that's not true yet because weeds and thorns still infest the ground. And so here's the thing. That wonderful hymn of the faith is looking forward to the time when Jesus Christ comes a second time and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. And the, listen, the effects of the curse of sin will be reversed and the world will be made new when Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the throne of David. And folks, that day is fast approaching. Let earth receive her king. And I say, even so come Lord Jesus. But that particular time is what Revelation chapter 20 points us forward to. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so we began looking at this passage in our time together last Sunday. I want to return to this text and I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 10. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, and this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but the fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, it's very true that we live in a world that is upside down. 
And the world has been upside down since Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and the curse of sin has been taking out its toll on humanity ever since. We live in a creation that's under a curse. And yet the day is coming when this upside-down world is going to be turned right side up. And that's what we have to look forward to with the future millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, when the world is turned right side up. That's what the Apostle John sees a glimpse of here prophetically and then records that for us here in Revelation chapter 20. Now, what is it that we mean when we refer to the millennial kingdom of Christ? What is the millennium? Because you won't find that word millennium anywhere in the Bible. You won't find that word mentioned in this passage that we've read. However, it is this text that gives us that particular name. Because millennium simply means thousand years. A couple of Latin words for thousand and years, that's where we get this word millennium or millennial from. In fact, those of you uh, who... who um, you remember the whole Y2K thing 22 years ago uh, when we came into the year 2000. Everybody thought the world was going to end uh, when the clock struck midnight from 1999 to 2000. Remember, thought the computers all over the world were going to crash. And I remember I was in a watch night service on that night. I remember sitting in the balcony of the church that I was in. Lulu from Hee Hall was there that night and, and it was 1999. It was a long time ago. And uh, anyway, I remember thinking, man, the world's going to end. And here I am, Lulu, she's there on stage performing. What a way to go out. <laughs> All right. Well, the clock struck midnight. It turned 2000, January 1, 2000. The world didn't end. But everybody was talking about the millennium. Uh, those that were born during that time frame, you know, and before that are millennials. So what is it that millennium means? It means thousand years. And so that phrase, thousand years, is repeated six times here in these verses. In fact, it's repeated six times in seven verses, and so there's a point of emphasis that's being made here. And this is referring to the time in which Jesus Christ will rule from the throne of David as sort of a prelude to the eternal state. And the world has longed for a golden age, a time when peace will reign supremely on earth. A time when injustice will cease and when all will be well with the world. And by the way, this is not something that humanity could ever achieve on its own. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Uh, he said, apart from the second advent of our Lord, the world is more likely to sink into pandemonium than rise into a millennium. If it weren't for God's sovereign intervention and his direction of history, the world would indeed sink into a pandemonium. And we wonder, is that what's happening in our world today? It seems like, uh, you know, the world is literally sinking into some type of pandemonium. Man may be able to improve his environment through technology and science and that kind of thing, but he cannot change what's on the inside of himself. He's powerless to change his own nature. Deep down within his heart, he's still a rebel against God. And so it's God who will one day intervene in human history in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does so, when Jesus the King comes, this upside-down world will be turned right side up. Now, what will this involve? Well, notice some specifics from this passage of Scripture. Number one, notice with me that it will be a time of fulfilled promise. 
when Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom, it will be a time of fulfilled promise. And so the millennial kingdom of Christ, this is a literal period of a thousand years that will begin when Jesus comes at the end of history to establish his kingdom. And from our perspective, that may sound like a really, really long time. However, remember, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, don't forget that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, Peter says God's not slack concerning his promise. One person has even pointed this out, that there was a thousand years between the time of Abraham and David. It was a thousand years from the time of David to Christ, a thousand years from the time of Christ to the Middle Ages, and it was a thousand years from the Middle Ages to where we are currently. So from God's perspective, this coming millennial kingdom is perhaps like a day that passes between the return of Jesus and the eternal state which is to come. You might even think of it as earth's most glorious day. A thousand years of peace and prosperity and glory that will merely serve as the prelude to the eternity to come. In fact, what you see here at the end of the Bible, uh, it's almost as if the tables have been completely turned. And what you see is the undoing of the curse, the reversing of the effects of the curse. That's what Jesus Christ has done as he's making all things new. That's what we as believers have to look forward to. Only four chapters in the Bible, sin is not a problem. The first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. And it's a wonderful bright future that the people of God have to look forward to when Jesus Christ returns. And so we looked at this briefly last week, but I do need to emphasize this briefly. Uh, there are some common understandings of this millennial kingdom. And historically, believers have sort of shaken out into roughly three camps. All right? And so first, there is the post-millennial view. And if I could just summarize this, here's what I would say. The post-millennial view sees the return of Jesus after the kingdom. There are some people who say, well, What's going to happen is the church is going to usher in the kingdom of God through preaching the gospel, and so the world is gradually going to become a better place. As the work of gospel ministry and as the church spreads the news of the kingdom, uh, the Christian message will eventually change the entire world, and the world will eventually sort of blossom into this golden era, and when it does, Jesus will come, and then he will usher in the eternal state. Now, that was a popular view at the end of the 19th century and on into the early part of the 20th century, but then the 20th century happened with World War I, the whole Spanish flu pandemic where millions of people died, and the Great Depression, and global economic chaos, and World War II, and then you had the Cold War and the threat of, of nuclear war literally destroying life on the planet. And so the result of a lot of that among believers was that this post-millennial view lost its luster. And no one would say today that the world is becoming a better place. It seems like, if anything, the world is descending into more and more chaos. That's the post-millennial view. And then there is the amillennial view the amillennial view sees the church of Jesus as the kingdom. It's just a simple way to summarize that particular viewpoint. And those who hold to this view believe that there will be no literal kingdom on the earth, 
Those who are amillennial believe that the kingdom of God is already present in the world. And so an amillennialist would say, we're currently living in that kingdom age, and Satan is currently bound. And so they would interpret all of Revelation chapter 20 as being figurative and symbolic of the church age. Now, there's a lot of conservative, well-meaning Christians who see things this particular way, and they hold to that view, and that's fine. This is not a point of breaking fellowship over. All of these things are kind of secondary issues uh, and that kind of thing. However, I don't think that that's what the Scripture teaches. The third view is the premillennial view, which sees the coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom. And I think if you just take a simple, straightforward reading of the book of Revelation and a simple, straightforward reading of Scripture and the promises that God has made to Israel in the Old Testament, I think that this is the view that you're going to come to uh, to just simply let the Bible say what the Bible says. And that premillennial view sees that Jesus Christ, when he returns, he will then establish a 1,000-year reign upon the earth during which all of the promises that God made in the Old Testament to Abraham, to David, to the nation of Israel through the prophets who foretold a coming golden age when Messiah would rule and reign from Jerusalem, all of that is going to be fulfilled in the coming kingdom. And so this promise is found all throughout the Scripture. For example, Psalm 72, the Bible says of the Messiah that all kings will fall before him and nations will serve him. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That was partially fulfilled when Jesus came the first time, but now here's the thing, verse seven of that text is yet to be fulfilled. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The prophet Zechariah uh, says that the Messiah will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the great river to the ends of the earth. This is the same thing that the angel Gabriel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1 uh, of the child that she is to give birth to. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And listen to this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so with the coming of the kingdom, uh, all of these promises are going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again. And the Bible is filled with promises that point to this future time when the Messiah along with his redeemed people, will rule over a restored earth. And so Jesus has fulfilled prophecy both in his first coming and he will fulfill prophecy in his second coming. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. Because let me tell you, God has never made a promise that he doesn't intend to keep. Our God is not like some who go back on their word. They say one thing, they do another. That's never how our God operates. Our God is true. He's always true. He will always be true. And when he makes a promise, you can take that promise to the bank because God intends to keep his promises. 
And so those promises made in the Old Testament will all find their fulfillment in this coming kingdom that Revelation chapter 20 speaks of. So the millennial will be a time of fulfilled promise. Now notice the second thing. The millennium will also be a time of future blessing. Future blessing. And we're introduced to those blessings there in in just the first few verses of the chapter. Notice what happens. John sees an angel, sees the dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, the dragon is Satan, the old serpent of old, the ancient serpent, the one who was there in the Garden of Eden, who deceived Adam and Eve. And so notice John sees this angel, sees the dragon, throw him into the pit or the abyss, and shut it and seals it over him so that he might deceive the nations no longer. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but can you imagine the time when the devil is not going to be a force to contend with or to reckon with? Can you imagine that? And oftentimes throughout the years, people have argued against the existence of God because they wrestle with that problem of evil. If God is good and if God is sovereign, then why is there evil in the world? Uh, Why is there so much evil? Well, listen, the answer to the problem of evil is found right here in in this chapter because there's coming a kingdom in which God is going to deal decisively with both evil and sin. Yes, it's true that the enemy has been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what John is referring to here is when Jesus comes again, Satan, the serpent of old, is going to be taken and he's going to be restrained for that 1,000-year period. And so the first blessing that we have to look forward to is this, the serpent of old will be restrained. And so Satan's out of the picture in the kingdom. The very one responsible for keeping people in the dark He's going to be prevented from doing so in the kingdom. The one who's kept people in chains is going to be reduced to chains himself in the coming kingdom. The one who made the world a wasteland is going to be brought to ruin himself in the coming kingdom because Satan is going to be bound and the world that he's turned upside down is going to be turned right side up. Now, there are those who view all of this as figurative language, and they try to make this apply to the present church age and say, well, Satan is bound now. But let's just really examine that claim. Uh, Is Satan bound now? How can he be bound now when Acts chapter 5 says that Satan entered the heart of Ananias and Sapphira and made them lie? Or how could Satan be bound when 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that he's blinding the minds of those who do not believe? How could Satan be bound now when uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse number 8 says that he's a, he, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Or how is it that the Satan could be bound when 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that he hinders the ministers of God? Or or he goes around masquerading as an angel of light and his ministers as an angel of light. No, Satan is defeated, but he is not bound. But the time is coming when he will indeed be bound in the kingdom. If he's bound now, then it must be a really, really, really long chain. So Revelation 20 is not describing this present age because we know that the evil one is on the prowl. He's all over the place. Now, he's not omnipotent. He's not sovereign. He's not as strong as God is. 
You know, some people kind of approach the devil as if he's sort of, you know, yin, yang, that kind of thing. He's sort of just the equal, uh, just opposite equal of God. No, he's a created being who's subject to Almighty God. He's defeated through the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. And that's something we all can agree on. But what I believe this passage says is that he's merely awaiting prison time. Are you listening? That time is coming when he's going to be thrown into prison during the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. And why will he be imprisoned? Well, look at what verse 3 says. He's imprisoned so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And as it stands now, Satan holds the nations spellbound. 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world's captivated by Satan's lies, under the grip of Satan's control. That's why if we want to have effective outreach like Bible school in a neighborhood, we better bathe it in prayer. That's why all of our evangelistic efforts should be saturated with prayer. That's why our worship services ought to be saturated with prayer. The most important thing you could ever do for your pastor is pray for your pastor. The most important thing you could ever do for your children if they're not saved is pray for your children and share the gospel and speak the word of God on a regular basis to your children. Why? Because we are engaged in supernatural work, men and women. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness. And so we need supernatural power to combat this enemy But the time is coming when the devil's going to be chained and thrown into the abyss and his deceptive tactics will cease for a thousand years. He's going to be thrown into the pit, locked up, no possibility of parole. (laughs) And for the first time since Genesis chapter 3, the world is going to be made right as Jesus the King rules and reigns in righteousness and power. Now, that's a blessing, isn't it? Serpent, the serpent's going to be restrained. A second blessing is this. Notice the saints of God are going to be reigning with Christ. Verse 4, notice John sees thrones as in the plural sense. And seated on those thrones are those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So this this is a picture of the saints of God ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom. And that's something that the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian church of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And he says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases among yourselves? Don't you know that we will judge the angels, not to mention ordinary matters? So here's Paul's logic there. He's saying, in view of what we have to look forward to as those who are going to rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom, we are to be quick to settle disputes among ourselves within the body of Christ. And so the issue at Corinth, you had brother who was dragging brother off to court and they were taking all of their issues before unbelievers and it was really tarnishing the reputation of the church in the eyes of the world. And the apostle Paul says, listen, why don't you begin living up to your calling? Recognize your heavenly calling. You're going to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. So you are to settle issues quickly among yourselves because the world is watching. By the way, that ought to keep us on our toes in our relationships with one another as Christian men and women. 
The world is watching. Let's live up to our calling. So it's a blessing knowing that the saints are going to reign with Christ. Satan is going to be restrained. And then notice another blessing, uh, verse 4, the souls of martyrs will be resurrected. John says that he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony. The testimony of Jesus, the word of God, those who had not bowed down to the beast. So what John sees a picture of is those tribulation saints who had been put to death during the tribulation period, executed because of their loyalty to Christ. Uh, He sees that the evil system of man, the devil, he, he may have killed the body, but he couldn't destroy the soul. And now in the kingdom, he's seeing that Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the victor over death, is now raising to life again those who had been martyred for his sake. Resurrection hope is the hope that we have to look forward to, men and women, in the future. That's, a, that's something that the, the, the Apostle Paul gives an entire chapter to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as I understand it, the way that the Scripture teaches in the last days, just before the tribulation period at the rapture of Christ, or at the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ will rise first. At the end of the tribulation period, the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected Along with these tribulation saints who've come to Christ during the tribulation period, they're going to be resurrected, and they're going to be given a brand new resurrection body. Now, let me tell you what that means. It means in the coming kingdom of Christ, you're going to be reunited with your loved ones who've died in the Lord. In that wonderful news, we're not talking about fairy tales here. We're not talking about made-up superstition here. We're talking about our future hope as the people of God. This is what we have to look forward to, future resurrection. And we're going to all share in the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. You say, well, pastor, you say it's a 1,000 years. Yeah, it's just the first 1,000 years of Christ's eternal reign and our eternal reign with him. But this is an everlasting kingdom that we're going to be a part of, that we're a part of now, because our citizenship is in heaven now. I don't know about you, but man, that gives me a lot of encouragement and hope, especially as I'm dealing with all of the issues of this life, grappling with life in an upside-down world. When people that I love get sick and pass away, when I experience disappointment, disillusionment and hurt and all such as that. I need hope and there's something deep within my spirit and there's something deep within your spirit that tells us that things shouldn't be the way that they currently are in the world. And God would say, you're exactly right. Things should not be the way that they are. But Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new and that's something you can look forward to with confidence. So when the world is turned right side up, it's going to be a time of fulfilled promise and a time of future blessing. And then notice it's going to be a time of fruitful increases. You say, what do you mean fruitful increase? Well, there's the resurrection hope that's spoken of here in this passage of Scripture. But when you consider all of the promises that had been made in the Old Testament about what this future kingdom age is going to involve, prophetic passages like Isaiah chapter number 2, They talk about how the nations will learn war no longer, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares, and so it'll be a time of peace. The last chapter of Amos talks about how the world will blossom. 
It'll be a time of prosperity on earth. It'll be a time in which all of the prayers of God's people through every generation will be answered. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The way things are now, we're grieved that God's will's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. But the time is coming when that's exactly what will take place, when God's will will be done perfectly on earth just as it is in heaven. Chuck Swindoll says something so profound. Listen, he says, the idealistic dreams fueling the deep yearning of human hearts, these sound like unrealistic fantasies. Things such as peace on earth and justice for everyone, strong marriages and healthy homes, harmonious relationships, safe communities, moral purity, equal opportunities, ethical integrity. Will the world ever know such times? Will the deep groaning for a redeemed creation ever be answered or will happily ever after forever be banished to the final pages of childhood fairy tales? <laughs> Can you imagine a world where you no longer have to lock your doors at night? Can you imagine a world like where Isaiah talks about in this in Isaiah chapter 11 where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and children will play by the hole of a cobra? A little child will lead Bees, there's going to be changes in the animal kingdom, changes in the human kingdom, uh, changes in the heavens, changes in the environment when Jesus Christ comes to reign because it's going to be a restoration of Eden. What we read in the early chapters of the Bible is paradise lost. What we read in the final chapters of the Bible is paradise regained. And that's what the kingdom of Christ is all about. It's paradise regained. It's a prelude to the new heaven and the new earth, which is the subject of chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. I can't even begin to imagine what all of that's going to be like. I was thinking about this last night. We got a brand new kitten in our house. And I also have uh, a 10-year-old chihuahua, which regretfully I have to announce that I have that. I've had that for several years. My children love the chihuahua. I've never been a fan of the dog. I have always really sort of been a cat person, you know, most of my life, going all the way back to being a kid. My, my mama was like that. We, we like cats. And so last year, we had a, our, our, our pet, Cinnamon, died. She was our cat. We had her for 18 years. When we brought the chihuahua home, well, the chihuahua just chased around our old cat, made our cat's life miserable. Well, the tables have been turned now on the chihuahua, with this three-month-old kitten that we've got, and we've named him Dash. And I was just, last night, I was just sort of playing with both of them, and I thought, man, I just would so love to see the dog and the cat getting along with each other. One not chasing the other, one not barking at the other. And I got to thinking, you know what? In the kingdom of God, that's the way it's going to be. Can you imagine dogs and cats getting along with each other? Can you imagine a wolf lying down with a lamb? Can you imagine a child playing by the hole of a, of a cobra? I can't imagine that, that type of environment, but folks, that's, that's what's going to happen. And this is something that all of creation itself is longing for. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, flip back to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. I want you to see what, what the Apostle Paul actually says about this. In Romans chapter 8, Verse number 18, he says, For I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
So when you get discouraged with life, when you experience the pain and the frustration of life in an upside-down world, remember, believer, that's not even worth comparing with the future glory that's going to be revealed to you. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the world is upside down because of man's sin. The world is in a mess. God's not to be blamed for that. The world's a mess because of sin. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3, and so all of creation is, is, is groaning now, waiting for the future glory of the children of God. Because verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. When's that going to happen? It's going to happen in the kingdom of Christ. When the curse is going to be lifted and the effects of the curse are going to be reversed and it's going to be a restoration of Eden, that's what the kingdom of Christ is going to involve where creation itself is set free from bondage and obtains the freedom of the glory of the children of God because we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So you remember that every time that an earthquake shakes the ground beneath you, every time that storm clouds begin to gather above you, every time that sickness begins to take out its toll within you, remember that creation is groaning and longing for this future day when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And Paul says this is the hope that will get us through difficult times as believers. Isn't that just good news? I long for that time. I long for the kingdom. Someone says, well, what are we going to be doing in the kingdom? Well, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, for one. That means there's going to be responsibility that will be ours. It's not going to be sitting, heaven is not going to be us sitting around on a cloud eating bonbons for the rest of eternity. No, we're going to have responsibility in the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said those who are faithful over a few things will be made ruler over many things, and that opportunity will come in the kingdom as we serve the king. Randy Alcorn says of this, he says that service is a reward and not a punishment. We tend to think of services as a punishment. No, service is a great privilege. And this idea of service being a reward is foreign to those who dislike their work and only put up with it until retirement. We think that faithful work should be rewarded by a vacation for the rest of our lives. But God offers us something very different, more work, more responsibility, increased opportunity, along with greater abilities, resources, wisdom, and empowerment. In the coming kingdom, we're going to all have sharp minds. We're going to all have strong bodies, clear purpose, and unabated joy. Isn't that something? Someone says, well, why is it that work I don't really enjoy it now? Well, that's part of the curse. God told Adam he would work by the sweat of his brow. That's why you got to keep mowing your grass in the summer. That's why you got to keep weeding the garden. That's why you got to keep clocking in on Monday and clocking out at five, and you got to keep doing that day in and day out, and at times you wonder, where is a sense of fulfillment or accomplishment? Why, is it, why does it feel this way? Remember, that's all part of the curse. Oh, but can you imagine what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God when we serve with King Jesus 
And that curse is going to be lifted. And it's going to be peace and prosperity and joy forevermore. That's wonderful news. I don't have time to get into this. Maybe I'll mention it next week as we move on into the chapter. But there's a fourth thing about this coming kingdom, and it's, it's a time of final resistance. There will be a time of final resistance. And that's described there in the text, verses 7 through 10, where Satan is released from his prison temporarily at the end of the kingdom. Someone says, well, why in the world is that going to happen? Why does God do that? Well, I have to be honest, I don't know why God does that. But I don't have to explain why God does what he does. If I could explain why he does what he does, then he would really not be a God worth worshiping, would he? I simply know that this is what my Bible tells me is going to happen, and I just have to believe it. But it will prove a point, and we'll talk about that later on as we come back to this text. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? There's a lot of mystery that surrounds this great truth of the coming kingdom and the future for the world and the future of humanity. But let me give you a promise from Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful promise? And that's going to happen in the kingdom and the rule and reign of Christ upon the earth. You know, sometimes people are critical of that premillennial viewpoint, and they say, you know, it's too pessimistic. The world's going to get worse before it gets better. People say, well, is it going to get better? The Bible says, yes, it is. When Jesus comes, and I long for that time, don't you? Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know him as your personal Savior this morning, what's preventing you from turning from your sin and trusting in Christ who died to save you, who paid the price for sin through his sacrificial and substitutionary death on Calvary's cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day and Jesus is ascended, seated at the right hand of God the Father and the time is coming when he will return and establish his kingdom. And oh, even so, come Lord Jesus is our prayer. Give us hope. May this motivate us to be on mission, to point people to the hope of eternity, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God, may we be a church on mission. May we be witnesses for Christ to our neighbors and our families. May we make the most of the time while we have it, all for the King's sake. In this upside-down world, Lord, we're so encouraged by the truth that you're going to turn it right side up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.